You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing, Xander Wilson. Hello, hello. Emma Shepard. Hey, hey. Callum Jaspin. Hi, Damo. And for the last time as a member of staff, Timothy Burrows. Hey, Damo. Last time after something like 13 years of the Mumbrella cast. It has been 13 years, Tim, but mind you, with these lockdowns, it feels like it's been 13 years since January. But anyway, later in the Mumbrella cast, Callum will be talking to BMW General Manager for Marketing, Tony Sesto, about a rise in sales in 2020 despite a pandemic. BMW is very fortunate to, uh, to, to, to be in that position to, to really enjoy some of that bounce back and healthy spending. How BMW adapted to the changes COVID brought to the industry. We, we, we definitely spend a lot more now in digital marketing than we do across any of the other traditional channels. And what can be done to improve electric vehicle sales locally? A really good example is if you look at Norway, uh, where you know over 75% of new car purchases in that country are electric, and the main contributing factor is is government incentives. But first, the week's topics. Group M announces its new CEO as Amy Buchanan moves across from OMD. Coles and Woolies battle it out with the new campaigns and big statements on sustainability and... The first week of Seven's Tokyo 2020 Olympics coverage under the microscope. WPP's Group M has finally named its new CEO after it was announced this morning that OMD CEO Amy Buchanan would take up the role, replacing Mark Lolbach, who left in March. It's the latest big change at WPP Australia and New Zealand and has significant knock-on effects for OMD as well. Uh, Tim, there was a thought from some corners that after the departure of Mark Lolbach, the Group M CEO role may be dissolved, but uh, WPP was very quick to deny that was going to happen. And the hire of uh, Amy has made a pretty big statement for the network. What were your thoughts on the move? There's a lot there, really. I guess, firstly... Really interesting how much the influence of the Omnicom culture is beginning to creep out across all of the networks because you've got Amy having kind of come up within OMD, part of Omnicom Media Group. You've then got over uh, to IPG Media Brands, you've got both Lee Terry running the kind of the APAC level and then Mark Code running the uh, Australian New Zealand operation, both of them having come out of uh, come out come out of OMD as well as Omnicom. And then of course, you know, we 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 we've got Amy who I suppose had seemed like the logical successor one day to Peter Horgan, the CEO of um of Omnicom Media Group and another former CEO of of OMD as well, and I suppose you know the the, the logic for Amy is, although Hogs is by a long way the longest serving kind of group CEO, he's also probably got a lot more years ahead of him if he wants to do it because he's still relatively young himself. Um, so I suppose there's that career route question, but the if there was a surprise, it was. There was a very strong rumour a few weeks back that Amy was the favourite candidate, but that she'd knocked back the job. And that seemed to be the assumption around, you know, 
the, 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 the traps. It was kind of an open secret. And it the story seemed to be that they were looking at a potential, um, you know, maybe one or at least one internal candidate and then maybe somebody from a, perhaps a media company or a platform. It was never clear whether that was maybe, you know, someone at Google or someone at Facebook or you know, someone who knows that programmatic world really well and perhaps, you know, knows where the programmatic bodies are buried. But anyway, it looks like, you know, they, they in the end persuaded Amy. Um, one of the interesting things about that is what it also says about the departure of Mark Lowback, because I think some people assume that, it was an understandable money saving as much as anything. Um, but Amy would have probably taken a fair package to get her across the line. So I'm not sure now there's an obvious saving there. Um, but she's always come up through the media agency world, whereas Lowback was mainly a marketer in the past. Um, so it certainly seems to say that's the direction they're going in for that sort of, you know, Group M boss role. And interesting as well that um, this happened before the country manager, um, that vacancy created by um, Jens Monsies, um choosing to seeing the CEO role go as overall head of WPP when the you know when the takeover out of London happened. So um, yeah, interesting because it probably it sort of suggests that in reality, boss of Group M is a bigger role than whoever's going to end up with the country manager job. Yeah, that's a, an interesting thought. Now, we started hearing uh, about this uh, last uh, last night, but Zandi, you were the last Mumbrella staffer to, to chat with Amy on the record as part of the Mumbrella cast recently. And, and I know you uh, were, were asking her a few questions along those lines as well in terms of her, her future. What did she say back then? Does it give us any clues as to what uh, might have uh, happened after that uh, chat? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess like all good CEOs, she was very good at not straight batting uh, any line of questioning along along those lines. Uh, what's interesting is is that, you know, she's left just a few months as well after helping OMD secure the really quite lucrative Victoria government co- account. As you mentioned, I did speak with her last month and she had quite a lot to say about that account, you know, talking about it being a massive focus for the agency and the agility needed to repurpose agency staff between various accounts, something that she'd been very proud of during COVID and that sort of thing. When it came to chatting about her future, she was, as I mentioned, pretty quick to shut down any speculation that she'd be leaving OMD anytime soon. But she did say that she didn't doubt that Omnicom would have plenty of options internally to step up if she chose to leave one day, which is interesting. Um, And I think we've got a snippet of that here. So there's plenty of people who have the capability and potential to step into my role one day. There's no question about that. It's kind of who and when would be the... um, And I love love this business. I love this role. I, I won't walk away from that lightly. So... Now, what you didn't hear there was me asking her fairly directly if she was in the running for the Group M CEO position. Um, and now that she's got it, I don't suppose it matters that I revealed that she didn't really answer the question. It was just sort of silence and I had to cut that bit out of the interview uh, because it was just silence. Instead, she moved on and as you heard there, she simply said she wouldn't walk away from OMD lightly and um, I guess that sort of gives more credence to Tim's idea that it took a fa- fairly significant package to to get her across to Group M. 
Yeah, now, Tim, as you just mentioned, the Group M CEO role seems to have sort of increased in, in stature and importance, but, but one role that already had a lot of stature and importance is, of course, the, the role that Amy leaves behind, the OMD CEO role. One of the things that I've been impress- impressed about with OMD over the years has been how they have moved from CEO to CEO rather effectively still maintained uh, significant success. Mumbrella, of course, announced uh, OMD as the media agency of the decade uh, in 2019 at our retreats there. And, you know, that's gone from James Greet in the early noughties uh, to Mark Code to Peter Horgan to Amy Buchanan, of course. There's a, a big role to fill here. Uh, any thoughts on what we should ex- be expecting in terms of the person who ends up filling that role? Yeah, look, I mean, you, you, you're right. OMD, the the most consistent agency over the last decade. So big clients and th- they've retained for a long time, you know, McDonald's, Telstra, Qantas, you know, absolute blue chip clients. Um, this isn't an inside track, but the, the, the person I thought of first, if it's internal and there is a tradition within Omnicom Media Group of going internally, despite the fact that they've said there'll be a kind of universal search is is Mark Jarrett who you know now is within the family over at PhD CEO of PhD which um which I you know I suppose certainly in Australia OMD is the bigger agency you know ahead of PhD and then Hearts of Science but of course Mark was with OMD for best part of a decade you know he was managing director before he moved across to to, to PhD about five years ago so the I'd be very surprised if there's not at least a conversation happening with him right now. And just finally, was it a bit of a rock and a hard place uh, with Amy in terms of, as you sort of mentioned, the, the next step up would have been Peter Horgan's role. Peter's very successful in that role at the moment and has many years uh, potentially still to go. Uh, it seems like there might not have been any obvious step up uh, currently for Amy uh, at OMD or, or the Omnicom group. Yeah, that um, that's certainly some of the logic. I think you know one of the one of the questions is do you do you choose to leave a culture that you know you've you've contributed a lot to creating and that's well respected, um, and you know things aren't people don't always talk about the Group M culture in the same way. So obviously there's a big challenge there, and maybe that's attractive, um, but certainly. Um, you know, in the end, people are, you know, people are human and people have got mortgages to pay. And, you know, I'm sure this is a, you know, I'm sure this is a role that's going to help her pay off a mortgage a lot faster. Coming up next, the battle of the big supermarkets as Coles and Woolworths push their sustainability strategies. The Battle Between Coles and Woolworths turned up a notch last week as both launched new campaigns focused on their sustainability goals up to 2025. Here's a snippet of the Coles campaign and we're going to follow that up with the Woolworths campaign. Introducing Together to Zero. Zero hunger, zero waste and zero emissions for generations to come. Hello, Mr. Goldstein. That's today's fresh food, people. 
It marks a new battleground for the big supermarkets and a war that was traditionally being won by Coles, but recent reports have had Woolworths making up significant ground. Emma, from an industry perspective, it's a battle between Lisa Ronson and Andrew Hicks and their respective uh, marketing teams. Lisa Ronson, of course, the CMO at Coles. Andrew Hicks, the CMO at uh, Woolworths. You spoke to Lisa recently uh, about the campaign and those sustainability goals. What did you find out? Yes, well, sustainability has been a big topic of conversation for a while now. And I think Australian supermarket giants are almost locked in a new war as consumers shift their attention from price to sustainability. Uh, Consumers are now becoming a lot more conscious of sustainability, uh, in particular power, energy and food waste. So these supermarket giants and their marketing teams are changing with the times and most recently ditching more plastic as sustainability becomes the modern day draw card. Uh, I spoke to Coles CMO Lisa Ronson on their new sustainability campaign and that was centred around their two pillars uh, of Together to Zero and Better Together, which launched launched last week uh, via DDB Australia. Uh, and she said the aim for them was to really start communicating with its customers uh, and giving them what they want. And its goal basically is to be Australia's most sustainable supermarket and trusted retailer, which is a pretty big call. Uh, we also have Woolworths is making uh, you know big pro- progress uh, after investing in a wind farm last month in regional New South Wales. Uh, by as early um, Jan- as January, it's expected the farm will power 30% of stores across the state, which is amazing. Uh, plastic has also been removed from milk bottles. It's also opened uh, the Woolworths Discovery Garden Program, which Andrew Hicks said is a part of the Woolworths ongoing commitment to sustainability, which aims not only to have a positive impact on the planet, but start conversations amongst families that result in positive change for the local environment to help create a better tomorrow. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting battleground. I still shop at Aldi, but they have uh, solar farms on top of a lot of their uh, supermarkets. Not that that's the reason I shop there, but that's another story altogether. Let's talk about the campaigns themselves before I get too sidetracked. Very different approaches in those campaigns. Um, as you mentioned, uh, Emma, the Coles one uh, through DDB and Woolworths through MNC Saatchi, but Coles uh, leveraging its history, Woolworths leveraging its fresh food slogan and its green colouring. Tim, I understand you've seen a campaign or two in in your time uh, at Mumbrella and B&T before that, but uh, what do you think of those two campaigns? Yeah, they're very different approach, very different strategic approaches. And um, yeah, it, it shows just how far things have evolved over the last decade or so. Fun enough for um, for my final best of the week from Umbrella, which I've just started to write. I'm making a list of all of the things I was wrong about, um, of which there are many. But one of them was I just thought the Coles ad um, that sort of launched down down with status quo was such a joke, and it propelled Coles to years of dominance. Um, you know, they they really you know the big red hand cut through the focus on price really cut through. Um, so that, uh, you know, the, the, the direction we're going in at the moment is very different. Now that was under Ted Horton's Big Red, um, who I think still do some stuff on Coles, but DDB seem to be kind of taking the lead on stuff at the moment. Um, but yeah, the strategies. Um, 
I suppose the first big question is, yes, we've got this sustainability battleground right now. And, you know, as, as, as Emma was talking about it, I was wondering to myself, I'm sure that when you survey consumers and you say, what's important to you, you know, you, you earnestly reply to the, to the researcher. Yeah. You know, I really want them to be sustainable. Um, but is that what happens when, you know, milk is a bit cheaper at one rather than the other? Or if you look at the battleground when they both got rid of uh, the disposable plastic bags and Coles delayed it a few weeks and they got a benefit from that because people were so cross about giving up their bags at the time. Um, but also, you know, there was, there were definitely PR issues around, for instance, Coles little shop, you know, those little plastic giveaways. Um so, you know, it looks like there's a sort of decision to kind of move away from the the boost that sort of um, promotion was giving um, and probably would would have done if they did it again. Um, clearly, they wouldn't be able to do it in this frame. Um, but then, yeah, the two the two different approaches in the campaign. So I I think you asked me which one which, which one I lean towards. I think probably it's the Woolworths one from MNC Saatchi. Um, now, I'm I'm. I'm Tasmania this week and it just so happens that I've been seeing that in the broadcast schedule an awful lot more than the Coles one where I am um and what really strikes me is firstly there's a big investment they've been running the the 60 second version rather than the usual 30 second version a lot which says that they're quite serious about this this isn't just something tactical it really strikes with the worst one you could see that being cut down into a whole bunch of 15 second spots featuring the different people um, Woolworths has got that natural advantage of already having the kind of green colouring, so you've now got that double meaning of green, which is which is quite interesting. Um, and then, I guess we'll find out at some point down the line how significant it is. But I noticed they've changed the final tagline as well, so it's not just the fresh food people anymore. It's today's fresh food people, which kind of while you've got the Coles ad harking back to the Coles history, you've got Woolworths looking forward with today's people. So um, that, that again, feels like points of difference. Um, and if there's something, and I think, you know, I'm sure Lisa will have ex- explained some of this to you, Emma, but um, if there's something which maybe I was unsure about in the Coles campaign, it's, it's the line around, but we'll need your help um, to get to um, zero hunger, zero waste, zero emissions. Um, you know, I'm you know I'm quite happy to like go in and buy the stuff, but how am I supposed to help you do that? Um, you know, isn't it kind of your job as the supermarket? So that so I can I can see the sort of try to activate people to kind of you know join the campaign in some way, but I. I wonder if there's a, a meaningfulness behind it and how how consumers are supposed to understand what that meaning is because as a you know as a consumer seeing the ad I'm not sure I'd understand how I'm actually going to help with that other than I guess the message is come and buy it from Coles and then you're you know by inference being the one that helps us out yeah, it's interesting in terms of they, they both took slightly different sustainability approaches as well in terms of Woolworths looking very much at, at the green, uh, whereas Coles were, like you said, Tim, looking at the, you know, um, make, making sure that, you know, 
hunger was something that they addressed uh, as well and and more uh, you know sort of different line uh, of sustainability I'll, I'll say but um interestingly enough though you also mentioned the the little shop uh, you know let, let's not forget that Woolworths was guilty to, to an extent of that sort of thing too you know my uh, bathroom is littered with ushies uh, at the moment which were very similar sort of thing and little shop items as well to be fair but I find it interesting that that these campaigns have gone so strong uh, relatively soon after we had those massive campaigns and let's not forget that they were they were multi-part campaigns too there, there were I think there was little shop little shop two and then a Christmas special or, or something like that um, and, and the issues were the same sort of thing so very interesting to, to see that particularly as I mentioned in the start where we're getting a, a much tighter battle in in the race for sales between Woolworths and Coles as well. But coming up next, we're going to change tack and talk about Olympic coverage. The first week of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics is done and unsurprisingly, it has dominated linear television ratings. Yesterday saw Australia take out several medals, equaling our most successful day for gold with three all on the same day. It helped seven break uh, above the 50% network share mark. Xander, looking back at the last week of ratings, has it simply been that uh, the Olympics is delivering what we expected or have there been a few surprise takeaways there? Yeah, so obviously it's been a really tough year for overnight ratings 2021, uh, especially outside of the news category. As we saw a bit of a boost to linear TV ratings during 2020 and lockdowns, but many predicted that the Olympics would sort of fail to deliver a turnaround to to the low ratings that we've seen for much of this year and and with predictions that, you know, a lot of media buyers said that a lot of people would be watching on BVOD, which, you know, we wouldn't see that translate into higher linear ratings. You mentioned there that yesterday, Wednesday, was a particularly good day for the Aussies and it did show uh, with Seven's night, evening and afternoon sessions all cracking the million viewer mark, which is pretty significant. I spoke to Seven this morning and and they told me it's the first time that they've cracked the 50% network share mark since last year's AFL Grand Final. Um, And Seven has been spruiking some record numbers on Seven Plus as well, but what we will need to do is wait to see for the Voz consolidated numbers for that week just gone to come out in another week or so's time to really run the rule over the performance there. But in terms of linear television, it's been a massive success so far and and I imagine most advertisers involved will be pretty pleased with, with the fact that they made that decision. Yeah, look, it hasn't been all smooth sailing, though. There's been a little bit of criticism on different areas of the coverage, uh, whether that be the amount of ad breaks that we're seeing or some technical glitches and, and things like that in, in 7 Plus. What have you been hearing in that regard? Yeah, so I think inevitably there were going to be a few teething issues around the coverage, largely stemming from the fact that more events have been made available for Australian TV audiences than at any other Olympics in history. In terms of free-to-air, Seven is airing coverage across, obviously, its three main channels, Seven, Seven, Two, and Seven Mate. But something that's cropped up particularly regularly across social media over the last week has been a bit of frustration that, that Seven has chopped and changed which channel and event is on, particularly when it comes to team sports like basketball, football, and, and hockey. It's obviously less of an issue with swimming and other events that are over in, in just a few minutes. Um, something I experienced myself this week was when Seven changed the Matildas game in the football to a different channel whilst I was out of the room for a minute. And I came back, sat down, 
and eventually worked out that there were ads playing, not because it was halftime, but because the football had moved to a different channel and I'd missed the channel change. And by the time I flicked across, we'd scored a goal and I'd missed it. And that seems to be a similar experience that several people have had and, and you know, fairly prominent blue ticks on, on Twitter have voiced their issues with. Um, I imagine Seven's response to that particular gripe was, well, maybe I should be watching the dedicated match stream on Seven Plus. But there have been issues aired on social media about the app as well. Uh, firstly, it's not quite live. So one night I was watching an event on 7 Plus and messaging some mates about it at the same time, as you do in lockdown, which a lot of the country has been, only to have the result ruined for me by someone watching on free-to-air because it was a few sort of like half a minute uh, ahead. And the other complaint I've seen across Twitter is that the 7, app, uh, 7 Plus app is just a bit clunky and difficult to navigate. One example, again, from my own experience was when I wanted to find a dedicated stream of the rowing yesterday, Seven had cut to Gladys Berejiklian's press conference on its main channel. When I was looking, it wasn't on the homepage, so I had to go and find the tab where you select individual sports, sift through, find the rowing, head to a new page, and then select the right stream for the event I wanted. And by the time I did that, the race was almost over. Tim, I'm going to put you on the spot. How have you found the, this Olympics coverage by comparison to others that, that we've seen in the past? Look, one thing that hasn't been as much criticism for this time around is in, in previous Olympics, there was there was a lot more almost verging on dishonesty to the viewers where they would try and provide one, I guess, intelligible stream of content on the main channel, which sometimes meant replaying something from a few minutes before, or even sometimes a few hours before, without actually letting on that's what they were doing. And, you know, I, funny enough, as a consumer, I found myself this time still expecting that a bit. So a number of times, I think we talked about it on the podcast last week, actually checking, is this really live? And sometimes it's because of the lack of atmosphere because no audience, but, um, but, you know, they, I guess that's the thing. When there are several things going on at once, you know, yeah, you, you have to make some choices. But, you know, I, I, I certainly recognise the, the commentary on Twitter that um, Xander's talking about where sometimes it feels like on the main channel, James Warburton's just sitting there with a remote control flicking between channels and we all have to sit there and, uh, and watch him command the network. Now, I, I know that broadcast television doesn't actually work in that way, but that, that's my mental image. That's a lovely mental image to have. Uh, Xander, before we wrap up the Olympics uh, chat, you've spoken to a few um, a few agencies uh, as well in terms of uh, what their thoughts are on the coverage itself. Uh, what did you hear there? Yeah, I, I spoke with um, MKTG's Managing Director for APAC, Matt Connell, to get a bit of perspective. And, you know, perhaps my initial thoughts were a bit harsh that I voiced there. Um, Matt's obviously got a wealth of knowledge of sports broadcasting and knows a lot more about it than I do. Um, and he said a few things that, that sort of made me go, okay, well, maybe the coverage is doing pretty damn well. He said it's worth remembering how complex it is to put together from a production side of things, especially given the dozens and dozens of channels that they're curating all at once. And given that, he he said he thinks it's easily the best coverage of an Olympics that Australian audiences have ever seen. Just, and though he admitted that it's not completely perfect, um, it's really just the access accessibility and quality of the broadcasting that we're getting that really goes beyond anything we've seen before. He said with the issue of having sports change channels mid-game, it's really quite small compared to the bigger picture of what Seven's offering Australians. He also thinks Seven's done a really good job in creating really exciting coverage despite a lot of venues 
having limited or no crowds. I know that's something that Tim's spoken about before. I'm not sure I'd agree with him on sports like football, but with sports like swimming and other things where you can't really see the stands, where they've got their sort of number one commentators on and that sort of thing, um, you know, I haven't really noticed that the crowds aren't in there. So um, fair play to him and fair play to Seven. Coming up next, Callum's going to be chatting with BMW marketing boss, Tony Sesto. Tony Sesto, General Manager for Marketing at BMW Australia. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. Thank you, Callum. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you today. Brilliant. So um, let's crack into it. Um, In 2020, BMW sales uh, were up 0.9%, which um, is a positive compared to global sales, which were down 8.4%. What do you think about uh, it is about the Australian market and I guess BMW's positioning here that was able to see them go against the uh, the global trend last year in sales? Yeah, I think Australia was in a very fortunate position and continues to be in a very good position in terms of how the economy was able to bounce back really quickly um, post some of the uh, some of the the lockdowns that we faced uh, last year, and this has translated into really healthy spending uh, across so many industries in the auto sector, in particular, and luxury. And BMW is very fortunate to uh, to, to to be in that position to to really enjoy some of that bounce back and healthy spending. Did um from a marketing uh, point of view, did BMW see itself repositioning over the course of the year in order to adapt um, to that kind of uh, new economy of sorts, or was it more of a um, sort of business as usual? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Callum. It, it was a result of a continued strategy. So there was no need for BMW to reposition itself. Uh, if anything, it was an opportunity for BMW to continue to, to build on the momentum and the strong position that the brand uh, has in, um, in this market. What we did uh, do, however, uh, last year, Callum, was respond to the way customers wanted to deal with us. And if anything, that meant a whole range of uh, digital um, initiatives that we fast-tracked and uh, and brought forward. Would you mind giving a bit more context into what some of those? Yeah, absolutely. First, but probably before I do that, I, I'll just go into some of the points of why we actually did make these changes and, and just re-emphasise, I guess, that the digitalisation really altered uh, the way that customers wanted to interact with BMW and, um, and and there were specific steps that we implemented in this area to to meet those um, those new requirements that uh, I guess our customers had. Um, customer expectations, I, I guess they've they've changed and we we really needed to meet these new requirements. I guess we live in a fast paced world, so it's being able to provide a service I guess that's efficient, convenient, and effective. But, I mean, customer service will will always be at the heart of everything we do and we will continue to enhance our digital offering now and and in many years to come. But to to get back to your your question, Callum, some of the things that we have introduced and some of the steps that we have taken, our online configurator now has drive-away pricing and 
it allows customers to jump on and configure the car and build, I guess, the BMW of their dreams. And then once they've done that, they can actually search for where this BMW might be located by using our online stock locator and then go even further uh, utilising our online shop where they can reserve and start the online purchase journey for this car that they've found. One of the other steps that we've also taken is this year we've introduced a new pre-sale online platform through our online BMW shop, which actually allows customers to secure new vehicles before they even arrive into the market. Uh, Some of, uh, for example, such as the new fully electric iX3, the iX and even the i4. So we went live with this at the beginning of the year, as I mentioned, and since then, we already have over 180 pre-sales for these vehicles, and that's before they've even arrived into the market. And are there any other strategies that COVID has spread up um, or brought along the line more generally, not just um, specific to digital? Uh, I wouldn't say that COVID has necessarily sped up any of our marketing strategies. What it has done, though, is change the weighting that, uh, that we place across each of the different communication channels. So we, we, we definitely spend a lot more now in digital marketing than we do across any of the other traditional channels. Um, and by doing this, it allows us to be more targeted to our audience, whether it's existing customers or trying to reach out to, to new customers, which, um, which isn't always that easy with, uh, with some of the traditional channels. Um, I think digital marketing also enables us to react quicker to the changing conditions with our message or our communication. Um, We can measure it. Um, We can measure uh, what's working, what's not working, and we can optimise what's working. And we can do it in, in real time. In saying this, though, I think there's still a place for traditional channels such as TV, for example. If your objective for the campaign is to hit as many people as possible, then TV would still work in this uh, in this scenario. So, in terms of the agencies that um, BMW has rostered from their creative side and media side, what do you see as the most important factors in that relationship right now? And I guess the expectations that you have from the creative side of things as we move forward. I think the most important things with uh, our our uh, our client our agencies atomic 212 who look after our media and Clemenger who look after our creative is that personal uh, relationship so we're very fortunate that we have a very strong relationship with both of those agencies and they they really understand um, the auto industry but they really understand our brand and our core values. And that really helps us with our communication strategy and ensuring that our communication that we're putting out into the marketplace is really representative of the BMW brand and our core values. And in terms of um, kind of larger scale uh, branding and um, campaigns, how much control it comes from a more national sense or a local a locally driven campaign? Because I know that a lot of the kind of larger campaigns will be global. How, how much work is done there, I guess, to tweak it or um, make it more applicable for an Australian marketplace? It's um, it's really dependent on what the campaign is, Callum. If I look at uh, the current campaign that we've just kicked off 
in market right now, which is our collaboration with Coldplay. Um, that is promoting um, our way into uh, into the launch of electric vehicles with the i4 and the ix and that is a global uh, campaign which we've uh, we've adopted here into our market but then following on from that campaign we introduce uh, a, a local extension which talks more i guess to uh, to the australian consumers and for us that campaign is uh, is around performance being redefined so not only do we take the positioning from a global perspective, we then adapt and adopt it to, to really suit our, uh, our market. And um, in terms of a kind of strategy moving forward, how, do you, how does BMW see itself? Um, I know you've talked about those campaigns there, but from a more, uh, a more general positioning, how do you see yourself capitalising on that growth that, um, that BMW saw in 2020? Well, in 2020, uh, BMW saw growth, as you mentioned, and we're very, uh, very pleased to see that for the first half of this year, um, sales have continued to grow. So the BMW brand is up 12, uh, 12% in the first six months. And we're really excited because we, we still have so much activity for the second half of this year. We've got another 10 new models still to launch in the uh, into the Australian market. Two of those, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, electric vehicles on the back of the campaign currently running now, uh, and that is the iX3 and the iX, our first uh, electric SUVs. Um, the iX has range of uh, over 600 kilometres, so really exciting uh models to uh, to be launching into the Australian market and a really exciting time for uh, for BMW and electric vehicles. So a report was released, I believe, last month by car sales, which was um, generally going over how there, that while there is the interest for electric vehicles in Australia, we're really not seeing the same uptake that, um, that EVs have uh, more globally. And this is down to, you know, uh, a number of reasons, one of them being Australians are finding that they're priced out of it, another being that there's not the type of models available um, that are, you know, something like the Toyota Hilux, which is one of the most popular models in Australia. You've mentioned there you've got an SUV coming out. Um, what do you think needs to be done in order for electric vehicles to really see that growth that will match the interest that, um, in searches, for example, online? Yeah, it's it's a, a an important um, it's an important point you raise in terms of what will be that uh, that that lever that uh, will actually convert people from uh, interest because we are seeing uh, significant growth in interest from um, from people with electric vehicles. Um, I, I think, Callum, a, a really good example is if you look at Norway. Uh, where you know over seventy five percent of new car purchases in that country are electric, and the main contributing factor is is government incentives. So I think if if we want to see a, a real uptake in our market here in Australia, and, and certainly we do, I think government incentives and support packages that uh, that make electric vehicles more compelling and and, and appealing will definitely play a key role. 
Yeah, I, be, uh, I mean, I've seen um, the Victorian levies that are currently placed on electric vehicles uh, have been described as some of the worst in the world. Do you think uh, for the kind of more uh, low range models, do you think this is pricing Australians out or is for BMWs, this is much of an issue or something that's taken into account when looking to purchase an electric vehicle or maybe not so much because it is of that kind of middle to upper price point. Yeah, the the incentives are a really good start in terms of supporting uh, those that do have an interest in electric vehicles, converting them from, I guess, from um, from from search to to actual car sales. Uh, obviously, um, we're we're not uh, in in um, in the position to. Uh, to have consumers benefit from all of the incentives that the, the various states have introduced because of the various criteria and uh, and caps. But um, I, I still have to say, Callum, that it, it is a really good start from, from the various governments and, and seeing that they are starting to, to show an interest and play a role. And um, moving on to, I guess, uh, the, the, the future health of the auto industry more generally, um, I know, obviously, BMW experienced a good 2020. That wasn't the case for some of the other brands. How do you foresee, for example, high, more hybrid working habits, uh, people moving out of the city for a more kind of comfortable, spacious life, and then also the rise of mobility as a service influencing personal car purchases over the coming years? Yeah, it, it, there's no doubt that, um, I guess, COVID forced us to embrace change and, and, and sort of think of new ways on, on how to approach life and, um, and, and work. Um, I think our environment is, is, in, is in need of, of nurturing. Um, so we need governments, investors, uh, auto manufacturers, corporations, and, and even the general public to sort of start to embrace sustainable business and, and living practices. Um, if I bring it back to, to, to the BMW group, um, one, of, one of our prominent goals is to have 25 electrified models um, in our product range by 2023, uh, and 12 of these will be fully electric vehicles. But it's, it's not just about electric vehicles for, for BMW. Um, there's other targets that, um, that we're pursuing from a brand perspective um, for example, uh, we, we want to produce the greenest uh, electric vehicle fleet by reducing the life cycle of CO2 emissions uh, for all our vehicles uh, by at least a third. Um, and these targets include reducing the carbon footprint in production by 80% uh, during the use phase by more than 40% and in the supply chain, uh, you know, by at least 20%. Um, so, you know, there's no doubt that, um, that people's personal vehicle purchases will change over the next five years. And, and that is why BMW is giving consumers um, the power of choice uh, between different drive technologies, for example, combustion engines, plug-in hybrids, uh, like you mentioned earlier, and, and fully electric vehicles. So from, from that perspective, how, how do you go from having you know, that, that range of vehicles and that offering and translating it into getting the uptake from the consumer. I know that Australia has one of the most oversaturated car markets in the world. Um, how, how 
from a messaging point of view, do you see BMW really differentiating itself? Well, for BMW, Callum, it's really about the ultimate driving machine. And that has always been the case with BMW. And even with the introduction of new electric vehicles later this year, um, it's it's really important to, uh, to, to, to let consumers know that there doesn't need to be a sacrifice uh, between an ultra, the ultimate driving machine and an electric vehicle. These electric vehicles are just as much fun to uh, to drive and enjoy as any other BMW in uh, in our range. And just finally, Tony, um, how does BMW working with you know Clemenger, Atomic Two One Two, and the rest of your rostered agencies? plan on appealing to a consumer base outside of that traditional audience? Yeah, it's, it's, it's always an ongoing challenge being able to, to, to target or talk to a completely new uh, customer outside of some of the traditional channels that, um, that, that we use. And I guess with new product that's continually joining our portfolio, we, we definitely try first to understand who the target audience is that we're going after how they consume media, and probably most importantly, what are the key messages that we want to communicate uh, based around these new products. Um, our campaign to promote new electric vehicles, for example, right now is a, is a good example. We did extensive local research with, uh, with a handful of our different partners to ensure that, uh, that we were using the right channels at the right time and we were communicating the right message. Um, is it working? I would say that it is working. In the first half of this year, uh, we've seen a, a good increase in the number of new customers that have joined the BMW brand. And when we talk about going into the second half with new electric product, we're confident that, uh, that this conquest or this increase of new customers will continue. Tony, thank you so much for coming on the Mumbrellacast today. Great. Thank you, Callum. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this week. Uh, but before we go, big congratulations to all the winners of the Mumbrella Awards, which were streamed very much live this afternoon, hosted by Merrick Watts. And also a big thank you to Tim Burries, your final Mumbrella cast as a staff member. Seems appropriate to uh, give you a, a chance to go out in some final words, if you'd like. Oh, gosh. Um, well, there is no speech ready. Um, but no, I mean, I've, I've always loved doing the Umbrella Cast. On, on and off, we've been doing it for probably more than 11 years now. We, 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 we started off, we used to borrow a podcast studio from CBS Interactive long before it was conceived that they would have any sort of connection to 10. So they used to be kind of down one level down from uh, Southern Cross Osteria in the World Square so we all used to kind of toddle off from the Mumbrello office um, uh, once a week to kind of record that um, so yeah it's, look, it's, it's definitely one of my favourite things to do so um, hopefully uh, hopefully I'll be uh, occasionally invited back as, uh, as perhaps a guest commentator well I keep um using the uh, term staff member because uh, I very much hope that we can do that. Uh, And if you do want to hear a bit more uh, about Tim and his other project, uh, Media Unmade, the book that he recently launched, there is an umbrella cast about that, which you can find in uh, whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts from a few weeks back. Do give that a listen. 
Uh, but that is it for this week, though. And remember to subscribe to the Mumbrella Cast wherever you're listening to your podcast to stay up to date with the ones that we're dropping on Tuesday and Thursday for all the latest media and marketing news. Thanks, everyone, for joining me, Xander, Cal, Emma, and Tim. Thanks, Dano. Thank you.